next minute I'm looking up at the sky and it's like rocks and debris and dirt and it's dark and it's real dusty and it's really quiet. I'm like, what the hell has just happened? Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to the final veteran conversation for Season 6 of Life on the Line. Curtis McGrath is a soldier-turned-sporting superstar. He was a combat engineer in the Australian Army and lost his legs when he stepped on an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan in 2012. From there, he set himself a seemingly impossible goal to compete in the Paralympics. Today, 10 years on, Curtis is a world champion paracanoist having won over a dozen gold medals at numerous Paracanoe World Championships and at the 2016 and 2020 Paralympics. Curtis spoke to me about his military career, the day of the blast in Afghanistan, his remarkable outlook on life, and how he turned a potentially life-ending moment into something remarkably powerful and life-changing. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Curtis McGrath. Curtis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you going? Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, Curtis, let's track back to where it all began for you. Where were you born? So I um, grew up in New Zealand. I was born in Dunedin, uh, in the South Island, um, but my parents were living sort of central Otago area, which is around like Wanaka and Queenstown and Alexandra. So I had a pretty adventurous lifestyle growing up there, a lot of outdoor activities, I did live in uh, Western Australia for four years when I was little, from 10 to 14. So um, I had a bit of outback upbringing, a bit of boarding school in Perth uh, as well. And then we moved back to Central Otago to help manage some family sort of land and, and property there. And I finished up my high school in Queenstown. So a pretty adventurous ca- adventure capital of, of some would say the world, but I'd say uh, just New Zealand. There's a lot uh, going on there, you know, playing rugby and, and snowboarding in the winter and, and cricket and and kayaking and swimming and all sorts of different activities in the summer. So we all get asked what we want to do with ourselves when we leave school. And um, I was pretty keen to uh, continue on with that adventure. So luckily enough for me, I had my dual citizenship and signed up in in, um, 2006 in June. So yeah, just wanted to continue on the adventure. Well, it sounds like you had, let's say, quite a practical childhood sounds very sporty also uh with a family that lives on the land that kind of thing and the varied experiences in new zealand and in australia especially say in your teen years i mean at both places you went to school you've been very familiar with anzac legend and that kind of history uh but i guess what first drew your eye to the military was it chasing the adventure was there any family history anything like that like I'm the first of my family to uh, volunteer my, my grandfather did a bit of like national service in the 50s so um, obviously before uh, the Vietnam uh, conflict and obviously Korea was around then but I 
think um, New Zealand was sending um, sort of national service or nashos as we call them here. Yeah, I, I think they sent a bit of artillery and, and some soldiers over, but I'm not I'm not too sure about that. But um, yeah, that was sort of the chasing adventure. I think um, you know, understanding that I was was not not the best student at school. Um, I think I probably was distracted by what was on offer outside. I was pretty good at the PE and the outdoor recreation side of things, but I uh, really didn't. Uh, want to hook back into the books and head off to university as what all of my friends were doing pretty much 90% of my friends they weren't doing that they were tradies and I often thought about doing that sort of thing but really didn't sort of spark that adventurous side of me so I wanted to explore something new go new places and um, you know just experience new things and for me really enjoying that outdoor stuff um sort of the, the military I knew you know especially the army was very orientated outdoors and um, having that sort of quite little bit of physical element to it was was something that I was attracted to um, to push yourself. And I uh, had a teacher, outdoor recreation teacher called Mr. McIntyre, and Ken McIntyre is, is a bit of a uh, Wakatipu High School legend. Um, and he he introduced me to kayaking on this big school camp in year ten. Then we did like snow caving and and like big hiking trekking. Uh, like weekend or five day adventures up into the mountains of New Zealand. It was it was really amazing, and it sort of you know planted that seed about you know going, getting outdoors and, and enjoying that in sort of a physical but also a, a team orientated process. So the military was definitely something I was drawn to. But as well as that, I was always interested in aviation. I'm currently studying a bachelor of aviation at the moment, so just to continue on that that theme. But obviously, I had a bit of a, a sabbatical there, but. The aviation was something I was always interested in. You know, my cousin was a helicopter pilot in Queenstown, so I often got to get on rides with him and fly around, which was awesome. And then with the choice of role, which I wanted to do, I wanted to be an aircraft technician. So fixing helicopters was my main sort of goal. And in Australia, you can direct entry into that role uh, through the recruiting process into the Army or the, or the Navy. But in New Zealand, they intake that role through the Air Force, and it is, you've got to go and do fixed wings, so planes first. And I was not really interested in that. Why waste the time for something I don't want to do? So I uh, decided to, um, to to pack up things and move over to uh, to Australia. I still, in a way, kind of feel new, like, as a Kiwi. But at the same time, I understood that the, the values and cultures of the people uh, within the two countries, you know, very sport orientated, love going outdoors, national pride. We're in the corner of, you know, geographically isolated in our own little corner of the world. So we feel sort of responsible for helping out further afield than what we what other countries do. And to me, they seem like the same sort of organization, obviously just wearing a different um with a different government. But in all in all, we're we're generally joined in military conflicts for my, for the most part. So I didn't see it as too much of a difference. Um, there was a few differences, obviously, the equipment, the opportunity to deploy to different places. It's, it's a bigger organisation. That's it's pretty much it. It's just a, a big organisation that's able to get into more places and do more things. So that was, you know, attractive to me. And, you know, you get paid a little bit more too. So that, that always uh, is a bit of a perk. That always adds up. So as you said, you join in 2006. We've been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq for a few years by now. So the possibility of that deployment and getting to have not just the outdoor experiences but learn skills test those skills in real settings contribute as you were saying that's all very much on the cards and you migrate from the dream of aircraft technician and end up in combat engineering 
Yeah, that's right. So I had everything I needed, you know, education-wise, ticked all the boxes, physical. The only thing that was missing was an opportunity uh, with the the army. Um, they weren't recruiting them for the next sort of 12 to 18 months. And when they told me that, I think I'd I think I was still 17. So I was very young, you know, naive. You know, that's it's a long time for a for a 17-year-old. So I was like, oh, look, what else have you got for me? And they're like, oh, what about building stuff and then blowing them up? And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. I'll, I'll do I'll do that. So combat engineering signed on the line. And about uh, two months later, I was at um, Kapukra out near Wagga Wagga and doing basic training. So that role specifically, unbeknown to me, it was, it was more like a, a, the Army's labourer. And I was... Unaware of that, obviously, most people are pretty naive to that fact until you're actually doing on the end of a shovel or, or on the end of a hammer. And, you know, there's some some great things that I got to do, especially in the humanitarian side of things. The deployments that we do as a combat engineer are generally, you know, helping out the community after a disaster or, you know, a conflict that's been through um, and we can provide and build infrastructure and, and, and you know, vital pieces of infrastructure like bridges and water purification uh, for the local community or the wider community too so having that sort of fulfillment and that that degree of purpose uh, within the military and within the locations that we're going for example we went over to east timor and built footbridges and medical centers and water tanks for orphanages and it was you know really fulfilling we felt really valued there and then, uh, you know, over to Indonesia for a, an earthquake that broke up all the water infra- infrastructure. So we were um, desalinating seawater into drinking water for the community. So we felt like we were very, very uh, in demand and, and highly sort of regarded for our capability. So that was really fulfilling, but it was always the case of not really getting to do that combat side of uh, my role until we were put into a combat combat situation, which was, you know, m- much further down the road. But Combat engineering, you know, I made some amazing friends, and I think that's why I stuck with it for so long. You know, the, the guys I went through my engineer training at the um, School of Military Engineering was, you know, they're, they're world class, and I'm, I'm, you know, still great friends with them now. And that's something that um, I think the the military specifically, and, and any sort of service related organisation, be it police or, or fires or whatever, you, you gain such respect for each other because you're all going through the challenges together and you get out the other side together. And I think that's something that that bonds people a lot, a lot better than just, you know, doing some team building strategies in the office or anything. You need to go out and challenge yourself physically, mentally, psychologically, get in, get amongst there, break down the barriers and, and feel vulnerable together. And then you you build you build, you know, those friendships and those relationships are a hell of a lot stronger. Because, as you say, uh, you've sold to you as you get to blow stuff up and so on. And uh, it's one of those things, if you say combat engineer, people think of the sappers in Vietnam. They'll think of uh, the work you were doing, you'll end up doing in Afghanistan, which we'll get to in a moment. But, yeah, it's, it, it's all those other jobs that you said. And just you join in 06, as we've said. And then in 2008, you have quite a busy year because you've got the time a few months in Malaysia, you've got your Timor deployment, you've got the earthquake you mentioned as well, which I think was right after that. So you got a busy year, not really doing the explosive, sexy side of your job, but a lot of hard work. I guess it's it's that team bonding, but it, it's that you're really helping these communities in um, places of need. Is there like a standout couple of memories uh, from doing that work in those countries? Yeah, I remember the I spoke about in East Timor. We did the um the water tank at an orphanage. And um, you know, obviously an orphanage is not the 
you know, these kids have had a hard time, hard life, and, and they're only, you know, four years old, some of them, and some of them are, you know, 15. And you can see that, you know, that there's some trauma there in its own sort of way and nothing that I've, I've felt myself or experienced or even witnessed before. I think I should say, you know, this is the first time I've been in an orphanage. This is the first time I'd seen children without parents that were looked after by nuns and, and community members. And it was, you know, it's touching. And uh, we, that was, we did the water tank. It was one of the first jobs that I got to do. That was probably about a month into our eight month tour. And um, probably, I think it was probably October, October, September, October, whenever it was. And we're like, oh, why don't we spend, you know, 50 US dollars each, which is, you know, bugger all in comparison, because we're not spending our money, we're not, not doing anything. Why don't we just go to the local like store and buy a heap of toys, like too many toys. We bought way too many toys that the, the nuns were not, they were impressed, but they, they were like, oh, we need to like hold on to these. So we, we rocked up with like a truckload full of toys for kids for Christmas. So we went and had like a Christmas dinner with them, which was really cool, a uh, really sort of nice gesture I didn't think we could do. Um, just to make make their lives just a little bit happier and hopefully um, a bit more, you know, hope towards it. So, which is, you know, a really fulfilling feeling. Um, the best thing we did was give them a water tank that they could store all their water in. And that's the practical help, yes. But yeah, the but the kids <laughs> the kids don't see that though. They, they, they don't understand that. So, you know, um, well, they, they might, but it's always fun when you, you get to hang out with the kids and, and, you know, play with the toys with them. And another one, um, we're in, in the, Indonesia, we're making water and we've probably made, you know, close to you know, a million litres of water or whatnot over, over a collective different water points along the coast. And then there was three water points. And our, our water point was placed on, on, a, on a rubbish tip, was right next to the ocean, you know, developing nations. They don't generally put the rubbish tip in the best spot, spots, but um, we are, we're there and we're trying to do the best we can. And as we wrapped up, we realised that, um, sorry, they realised that we were about to leave. And um, so they started bringing out like, their meals for us like cooked we were on ration packs which everyone in the military or anyone who's eaten eaten rough is is pretty adverse to, to eating these things because they're not that nice but um they'd bring out like whatever they had so it was like rice and like goat stew but the goat meat was not like you know chuck steak it was spines it was you know all the off cuts the the cheaper cuts of meat and you know, it was and, and i'm not diminishing the the gesture the, I'm trying to enhance it because what they had was little and what they were giving us was a lot. And we felt, you know, we didn't really, you know, we, we're just doing our job, making water and didn't really think much of it, but they were obviously very appreciative of it. And that was, you know, one of those moments that I was like, oh, actually the work that we do does make a big difference, even though it is incredibly hard. Like it was, you know, really average conditions, you know, with, with all that sort of stuff. So Hard physical labor as well. Like you would just be tired at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I remember I remember this on the water point. We because we were dredging, like pulling the water out of the ocean. Obviously, it's on the beach and we've got this valve in the water, and it's obviously all the sand gets kicked up at the beach on in the water. So we had to do like staging tanks to get rid of the sand before it goes into the big machines because these machines were very expensive and um they were sort of new to the military as well. In the sediment tanks, we'd have to like shovel all the sand out without obviously piercing the tanks which made a canvas or, or rubber and um i just remember like the second day i was there i got so sunburned and then for the rest of the trip i was like peeling and trying not to get burnt and it was hot and it was humid and it stunk and you know all that sort of stuff so perks of the trade i guess so over the 2008 
nine period, you've had these really soul-fulfilling, purpose-driven experiences through your military career. So you sign up for adventure and explosions and you've got some hard labor, but some really gratifying work. You've bonded well with your mates. And then you've a couple of years before we get to your 2012 Afghanistan deployment, you would have had pre-deployment training and otherwise just the day in, day out existence of exercises and other standard domestic Aussie military life. Yeah, that's right. There's a whole lot of boredom that goes along with the military, which is unfortunate. <laughs> um, as, as it's sold as this action-packed, adventurous lifestyle, there's moments of that, but more more of nothing. And um, it's you know all about being prepared for the event of of something, uh, whether it be a conflict or humanitarian or or recovery and, and whatnot. So um, in 2011, obviously the Brisbane floods that happened, um, I was posted to the Six Engineer Support Regiment. Uh, which is um, a sort of a construction-based unit um, doing more large-scale. Like we can do like big roads and community centres, not just little little things like uh, you know water tanks and, and or, um, medical centres. We we'd like build really big stuff. So that was the capability of that unit. But um, helping out with the Brisbane floods is some of the like the, the worst work I've ever done. Just the the scale of it was was really big, and I'd never been into a situation or an environment where it was complete and utter like disaster, which which was kind of weird because that's you know I live in Brisbane at the moment and that's what was you know that's home. Having that that sort of experience yeah, in 2011 and then yeah and then the the pre-deployment which I'll get to in a moment, but the scale and, and the work that we were doing you know it was on and then you're off again and then you prepare for the next disaster or the next event or the next something. Yeah, just whatever was going on, just especially being an engineer, because our capability is quite large. Our role is really broad. So we can, you know, make water, we can build roads, we can fix things. We've got electricians to do, you know, ele- electronics and plumbing. And, and then we've got plant equipment to build roads and grade things and, and build fording things through the rivers and, and all that sort of stuff. But as well as that, we can do explosives and bridges and, and defensive positions and all that sort of thing. So there's, it's very broad, and, and that's why our role is, is quite interesting. But often we're generally focused, and my my experience was all focused around that humanitarian, that recovery, the disaster relief stuff. But because your role is so varied, I mean, with any skill, use it or lose it, and it's that constant training to keep all of these things ready because there's a flood suddenly, as you were just saying, you have to suddenly go and deploy and have certain skills up your sleeve or you're getting ready to use a specific set of skills you can kind of forecast that you know that you'll need, but you then need other uh, redundant skills or backup skills depending on what situations arise. There's so much just repetition and training that goes into that, not just learning it in the first place on a course, but then reinforcing relearning that and that's why it's the long stretches of boredom because there's that expectation of when you guys are needed at home or overseas there's just instantly ready instantly can do uh, fulfill the function perform the task yeah that's right and that, that's why we can lead into like the pre-deployment training now because though each sort of scenario or, or environment or situation deployment um, requires like a set set of skills and being a combat engineer meant that our role was then sort of pivoting towards rather than humanitarian relief, which in a role, in a way we were doing, but we were doing it in a different way. And that's that's providing mobility. So I, I often say, tell people like, what is the role of a combat engineer? And officially it's provide mobility and deny mobility. So obviously that can be anything from building the bridge, the roads, the water tanks, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
but also to search the way forward for the uh, the landmines, the getting rid of the blowing up the the defensive sort of structures that are stopping the road, like the dragon's teeth and all that sort of stuff. So that role function sort of switches. And then we can focus on specifically what the dangers and the risk mitigation factors are of that role. And in Afghanistan and Iraq for a combat engineer, it was to provide the mobility and searching for the improvised explosive devices or landmines or caged weapons. So, or, or and the, the, the devices in which create these things or weapons as well. So more specific. And that's why the training for that, if you do that all the time, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it or, you know, or you data dump it as it was called in the army because you get taught so much stuff. You're like, oh, I can't. And you got to test at the end of the week and then you don't use it for months, maybe years. And this is what was happening. So with the search stuff, it was very intense. We started in, I think it was in October, late October 2011. Um, and we, just, we went gung-ho for until we deployed. So it was just... Train, 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 train. If not, we were on a. It was like Anzac Day, or we were had had a week off just to, to recover and, and rest, and then was back to it. Or you're on a like a, a specialist course, like a, a combat first aid course, or a signals course, or a, a driving PMV or um, crew commander course. Like it was just there's so much going on, and it was. And when you're all the time thinking about this search and the safety and this risk mitigation situation that we were getting taught to do. And, and that's why the, the tempo in a pre-deployment phase is almost more than what, what it is on deployment sometimes. So and not necessarily for us, but for other guys, I'm sure it was, you know, the, the amount of exercise time that you do. And that's why, unfortunately, you know, so many couples like break up or have, you know, relationship issues because, you do a deployment before you go on deployment. And, and I don't think that's sort of recognized because the amount of te- the high tempo of that training to get ready to go uh, is huge. And one thing about your pre-deployment training worth mentioning for later in the story is you also became, I guess, the unofficial medic of your four-person team. So Yeah, yeah. so combat first aid, I just mentioned the first aid course is like a, a secondary function within the combat engineer or a brick. So every four to five people that have one person that was trained usually one person that was trained in a um, in a, a high level first aid, so we got taught how to do sucking chest wounds, IV fluid, morphine, um, you know, more complex sort of combat injuries. Obviously, everyone gets taught in basic first aid, which entails you know bandages and tourniquets and splints, and you know dealing with a snake bite. But that situation is very basic, and you know most people should be able to understand that if they're bleeding, you should try and stop the bleeding. You know if their their legs sideways we should probably splinter that that sort of thing you know that that's that's sort of common knowledge but you get trained um in a generic sense for the the basic soldier but as a combat uh first aider it's just a little bit like higher level so which means that we carry you know the kit for that that role other guys are doing you know combat signal courses so they're doing more advanced communications and radios and and other things in that that regard um and then the brook commander obviously has got other courses that they need to do for um, command and control and certain other aspects so for me obviously the first aid and it was really cool like I really enjoyed that course and the actually the training in the pre-deployment setting was was awesome you know there was BNS which was battle noise simulation so little small like dice-sized bits of dynamite going off on the ground it's all controlled but in a a combat scenario which is done up and in a contact we're doing all this this training and 
for the first aid training and evacing and, and going into contact and then coming out and treating first aid and a mass casualty and triaging. It's um, yeah, it's pretty gnarly, but um, it's it's good times. And you mentioned there the very real uh, challenges of relationships and juggling that balance of professional and personal life and the under-recognition of what pre-deployment training can do to a personal life. And obviously from a partner's perspective, there's just the absence of you uh, in that sense. But is it also, I guess, uh, were you in a relationship at the time of this pre-deployment training? Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a girlfriend then and, and, and sort of she stuck with me, which is nice. So, And now your wife, yeah. But then I guess for you, are you, you're obviously mindful of keeping this relationship, but also you're, I must, you must be distracted and excited about, you know, this training, it's intense, it takes a lot of your mental energy, physical energy, but also you know it's to get you to Afghanistan. And so your head's kind of split. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I guess it would be all consuming. I reckon that would probably be the best way to put it. You know, you're always talking about what's happening next or where you're going, what the situation is and, and the, you know, the the location which you're deploying to, whether it be humanitarian or combat, but specifically on the combat side of things, the risks are, are higher. Um, you know, the, the insurgents are actually there, you know, all that sort of thing. So it was exciting at the same time. It's a new place, new adventure and, and new opportunities to see new things and experience new things. And I must say with, with different guys that I'd, I'd worked with before, I got attached to the second combat engineer regiment. So working with a new team of guys, which was just good. It's always nice to, to meet new people and, and go on adventures to, together and going through what we call the CERTEX phase, which is like the certification for a combat engineer. So we're one of the few roles that actually gets certified to go on deployment. Uh, we, we have to pass like a, a test, a big like five day exercise that's quite strenuous it's very high tempo we do night searches we do day search we do morning it's you know building road search vehicle search we we're doing all sorts of different things coming across blast scenes where we have to do sort of forensics which is i wouldn't call it forensics just bagging and tagging everything and putting it in the car and, and, and sending it on its way but trying to figure that out so it's all about you know the risk mitigation is, is really high for our role but and saying that it's, it's like all consuming. You're trying to like think about what's coming next or, or where we're going or what exercise are you going to throw at us next. So all that sort of thing is, is, as I said, all consuming. And then Curtis, 11 years after the world changes with 9-11, six years after you join the military, you finally deploy to Afghanistan and you've deployed overseas before, but this is in a different role with different people, different hemisphere. It's not a humanitarian operation. It's a war zone. Before we get to the events of uh, late August that year that really changed your life, what, I guess, are your initial impressions of the country? How do you find settling into the routine over there? If there is one, what's those first moments or... What's that first period like in country for you? There's a a war going on, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of talk about contacts and IEDs and insurgents there, and and combat here and there and everywhere. And you know, when we got there, I was like, well, like you know, we're all body armored up, and you know, got a lot of ammunition, grenades and stuff, and you know, grenade launchers attached to us, and we're like, oh, all right, we're obviously up for a fight or something, and it just for the first three months was nothing. Like all we did was go on search and, and route patrols. And yeah, we found a lot of um, cached weapons. So, you know, weapons that the insurgents would hide away so they could pull out and fight another day. 
or cached components for IEDs. So, you know, a broken TV or a computer that they'd pulled apart and, and put into a bag so they could construct something later, you know, um, looking for explosive componentry, old landmines or old RPG rounds that they'd sort of bunch together and, and use that as the explosive, like all that sort of thing. We'd find a lot of that stuff, but we never really found any setup IEDs ready to, you know, go off on someone, which was somewhat confusing because... You know, what we've been told is, is, as I said, you know, the combat zone, you know, there's this shit going on everywhere. And that was something that we're like, oh, okay, like this is going to be dangerous. But it never really gave us that sense. It never gave us the sense of danger. It never gave us the sense that there was insurgents all around us. You know, like it was just a little bit, not false. I wouldn't say it was false. It was just sort of like this this false sense of security in a way, um, sort of. But we were always, you know, obviously we were, we were being safe, so we, we weren't, you know, missing any IDs or, or, you know, the next car that drives over the area blew up, look type thing. It wasn't none of that. So that was somewhat like confusing, um, and the people were really nice. You know, we didn't really get too much uh, interaction with them, which I think is the big difference for me compared to the other deployments I've been on. You know, we were working with the people, like with the local people, with the local military in order to help their people or the community. And this time we were not at all. We were we were purely out to, to search the road or search through someone's house and to see if they had any weapons or to see if they were, you know, a Taliban sympathizer or, or insurgent sympathizer, whatever the organization was that was our enemy. We probably weren't as welcome as we were in his team, or that's for sure. We weren't quite at the level throughout the deployment and the security sort of enhancement to be able to provide the the aid or the provisions or the infrastructure that we've done in East Timor and Indonesia and, all, and so on. So obviously, different circumstances, you know, different different environment, but it just didn't feel as dangerous as what had been made out to be. But also the lack of satisfaction because of that and because of sort of that disconnect between. We weren't actually really helping and we weren't actually providing anything for the people. And I think that was that was quite weird for me because obviously the, the deployments in the past, really fulfilling, really satisfying, but we weren't actually providing anything for them other than the fact that they could drive on the road that we just searched over. But if we go around the corner for you know an hour or two and then come back, that road needs to be searched again. So it's like a weird sort of feeling about where we were and what we were doing um, because we were only providing support to our coalition forces and, and ANA um, allies at the time. So very different, as I said, but very interesting and incredibly beautiful as well, I should point. Very dry and desolate, but then there's like massive mountains so far out there, massive. Like, you know, I grew up in the mountains and these things were, were huge. And to feel like you're in the mountains, but in the desert at the same time was quite odd. And then you'd go into the the green zone, which is down where the rivers are and all the people live and, you know, water flows and, and all that sort of thing, the crops grow, was really humid. So it was a kind of a weird, weird environment, but um, a great adventure. <laughs> a relatively tame, great adventure in those uh, first few months. And then the 23rd of August is a dramatic date for you, shall we say. But is there any lead up to that? There is a bit of a lead up to that. So we got wind... We were in this sort of mobility team. So we would provide mobility to support from Tarrantcourt, which is the, the headquarters for the Australian deployment. And we'd go out and provide, you know, route route clearance out to the patrol bases. And then we're going to be in the patrol bases and provide them some, some mobility support there. But whilst we were out at these patrol bases, like patrol base Wiley and, and Hadrian and Mirawise and all that sort of stuff, we would 
assist them in their clearance operations. So then we'd join their combat team and become sort of part of their their capability to provide more mobility for the rest of the patrol, rest of the combat team. So we got attached to this team that was at Patrol Base Wali. We were heading out to Patrol Base Anaconda, which is way out in the way out in the Uruzgan province, like right on the border of, of other provinces. And American special forces were there. And it's not always a good sign when those guys are in town, especially when you're someone who looks at the dirt for sticks that are falling in the wrong way or, or an IED or whatever. It's you know that there's insurgents in the area, which in Tarankout, we got the, I think it's called Camp, Camp Holland. They were, that was the Australian Special Forces, but they would leave Tarankout to go out to other places and, and pursue the enemy. We're actually in patrol base Anaconda and they would just leave their base to go and fight them. And we knew that we were going to be doing that. The American, the Green Braves, they said, oh, you know, if you go past this hill, you guys are going to get a big contact. It's going to be, you know, it's pretty good. It's going to be gnarly. And they're, you know, I was like, far out. Like, this, is, this is way beyond what we were doing back down the road like that this is this is pretty crazy it took, took two and a half days to get out to anaconda so by road so that's and you only travel probably 50 60 k's or oh, not even you could probably only do 60 k's a day so it's, it's any indication that that all depends on the ground as well but anyway it's a long way away is what i'm trying to say then the americans got shut down and in, in the area i think the southern part of afghanistan got shut down the american part they all had to stay in base because there was a a few green on blues, and that that I'm sure you've discussed this before. But the green on blue is when the um, insurgents have infiltrated your allied forces. So in this case, the Afghan National Army, and then turned on our coalition forces. So on on the the Americans at that time, uh, and on the Australians a couple of days after I get injured. But that sort of made the the threat go up a bit higher because you know the Americans had a lot of firepower. They knew the ground. They'd been there for months. They they knew what was going on. They knew where the insurgents, you know, would likely be. Blah 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 blah. And then they're no longer with us, and they're no longer bringing their their search team, which was a local Afghani team. Um, and it, uh, we called them the stick pokers because, like, quite literally, they'd go out with like a a sharpened broomstick and like stick poke the ground and pull the ID out of the ground with the stick, which is obviously incredibly dangerous. But because of their ability to do this, we knew that they were very good. Obviously, firstly, they're alive. Um, and secondly, um, the fact that the Americans relied on them to move about, which is, you know, obviously identifying that they're good at their job. So we're pretty keen on them coming along. And obviously, when they couldn't, it uh, raises that risk again. And unfortunately, we requested a, a search dog um, because the one that was allocated to us had to go back to Australia because it got sick. And there was a lot of, you know, falling dominoes that sort of raised the risk a lot higher. And we got um, tasked with a, a five-day patrol to go out and re-establish this checkpoint that the Afghan police force had been pushed out from the, the insurgent activity in the area. And as we moved out, I think we were maybe a K and a half from Anaconda. We were hidden behind a hill, but we came across and it was just like blast craters and vehicles blowing up. And there was just shit everywhere, I should say. And it was just a, a mess. And we were like, man, like there's definitely an IED in this area. Like it was... It's obvious that it was in front of us just due to the, the way in which, which it looked. And sure enough, you know, we started properly search. Like I wouldn't say we weren't properly searching before, but obviously we were going a lot slower. We were a lot more thorough because of the, the risk which we were in. And um, sure enough, we, we found our first IED after three months in, in the country, which we'd been trained to do. So the risk was getting higher and higher. And we like, man, we are actually in a combat zone now we are actually in a war zone and and it felt like that too but you know before that yeah 
we carried weapons and more body armor, but I'd done that in East Timor and we weren't in a, in a combat zone. The threat felt real finally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, it actually felt like we were, we could, we couldn't use this body armor. We could use this weapon, but also we could use the skills uh, properly in, in the sense that we, we were actually at risk of, of uh, an IED, which was make the, you know, the hairs in the back of your neck stand up, whatnot. Yeah. So we, we found our first IED. We searched forward. So, I should probably talk about how that works. So we, we wave a metal detector over the ground. Um, we get a bit of a, a metal hit, whether that's a Coke can tab or an expended round shell casing, or it's an ID, or it's just you know a bit of wire that's fallen off the back of a truck or whatnot. It could be anything. Can't actually, most of the time you can't see them on the ground. So you move back, have a look around, you identify if there's any ground sign, like your depreciation in the soil, all that sort of thing. All the clear identifiers. We're always looking for patterns, really. If you know if there's stacks of rocks around that I marking things like that, that's all always little little signs. We then get down on our guts and we sort of get a mind potter and we sort of prod away at the ground and see if we can feel anything hard. You know, it could be a, a crushed coke can or it could be a, a pressure plate for something, because that could they could look quite literally use a crushed coke can to, to make a, a, a device. You sort of scoop away the dirt, obviously very, very carefully because it's pretty anti-tampering uh, sort of devices on them. And then um, you expose it, you know, oh, actually that is an IED. And then you you step back, take a photo, and you move back to the vehicles. And in that process, all in that time, usually the combat, uh, the, sorry, the, the patrol commander is on the radio to the, the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, which has the explosive ordnance disposal team with them so they'll roll on out and come and clear that clear the ied or if the patrol or the mission is a higher priority find another way around just mark it and leave it and just keep going it is literally up close and personal with that with you on the guts brushing the dirt away i mean how do you feel when doing that because it is i can only imagine how but you could be so close and just that one moment away from finding something. Yeah, obviously it's a pretty high adrenaline-fueled adventurous activity. But at the same time, for me, like I, I didn't find an IED the same way the other boys did, like like I've just explained, but I was trained the same way they were. So when, when you're finding it or finding something, I've found a lot of caged weapons, which you always consider them as IEDs until you identify them not. It's all about like the training, the training kicks in. So you, you're sort of going through the process. It's like, all right, that's what that is. So you're always looking for the training, what you've been told. So like scooping away the dirt, you're like, oh, is that a landline, like a, a manufactured landline, or is this an improvised device? So you're always looking for that, like, oh, where's the where's the main charge if I've found the trigger or the battery pack? Like, where's that? Like, the way in which they've set them up. You're super focused on the work, and that is yeah, a chemical process, yeah. So before you get on your guts, you switch off all your, ra your radio, um, because obviously transmitting over devices can be fatal as well. You don't want to, you only want to yell communication and it's generally one person and that's the brick commander. So Livo in our case, he's the only one talking to him. The rest of the search teams pull back behind everyone. We're all sort of spaced out, you know, 15, 20 meters, especially when there's a device around. Yeah. And then the, obviously everyone behind us, the infantry, the security, whatever asset we're, we're moving with us. They're all on edge as well because of, you know, we've found a, an IED and they're like, well, it's up to us as an engineer to you know, clear it or search for it and get it out of the way so they can come on through. It is pretty sketchy, but you know, it's part of what we what we were trained to do. And I, I believe our training was you know, world-class. 
So you're at this zone, you look around and go, there's got to be an IED here, and you start looking. What happens next? Yeah, so obviously I've talked about the QRF and the EOD team. They've come out, cleared it, and we move on. There's only one EOD team on this particular combat team, so they had to go back with the QRF because there's other patrols happening around the place. Um, so we had to continue on. And then sure enough, 100 metres later, we find another IED. You know, now that we've found one, we're even going slower and we're more thorough. So our rate of pay, rate of progress would be an hour per 200 meters probably. Uh, it was it was slow work, and you know we're three and a half thousand meters above sea level. It's 45 degree or 40 degree heat. We're wearing about 15 20 kilos worth of kit. You know, working about 14 hour days. Not to mention the the risk and the the high level of focus in which we're we're exerting means that it's pretty pretty hard work, but. Leaning forward, you know, you, you got to get on with it. So we call back out the QRF, they come back out and then they go back. And then then we have a little bit of a period where we don't find anything for maybe a kilometre. And that's where we just get onto the side of this checkpoint area. And um, then we find another one and the QRF then comes out and then the sun goes down um, and then we have to wait. Oh, actually, no, that was in the next morning they come out. So we had found it and it was too dark for them to get out to us. So they came out in the morning. And what was happening was because we weren't able to see the path in which we'd come in, their insurgents had gone back out and set up more IEDs to get us on the way back. So the QRF had found the IEDs on the way out, again, back to us in the morning. So um, that was interesting because we didn't realise that what was going on. So they had found another ID and they were getting rid of it. And we had this big explosion, but we didn't because our radios were sort of internal to our brick. We didn't have the overall combat radio, which is what the patrol commander and the brick commander's got. And we're just sort of searching away and all of a sudden an explosion goes off. We're like, holy shit, we've missed one. But it was the EOD team, found another ID and blah, blah, blah. They come on out. Anyway, it was, yeah, there's a lot going on. It was, it was hectic. And then they come out, clear that one, and we finally get up on top of this checkpoint and we realise that there's big boulder in the road of the on the main road and we couldn't get our vehicles past it because it's on like a, a big hill like a really steep hill and then so we find another way up onto it and we get up on top of the checkpoint start searching and, and setting in the afghan um, army that was with us to provide security this is on the third day the third day and you know, that's just an indication of how actually how slow we're going um to just to get get forward and, and be as safe as possible and then on the fourth day, we got approval to explosively remove that big boulder that was blocking the road because we knew that the Afghan army was going to need to use this this track because it was the, the easiest way. And so we're like, all right, sweet, we'll go ride this rock up. And as I talked about, you know, the fatigue, the conditions which we're working in, fatigue starts setting in. You know, I went on to like a different boulder that was on like the road, which we'd been using on, on the side, like a little like goat track pretty much. And I just wasn't really thinking it's hot and tired, I'm hungry, <laughs> all the rest. Pretty understandable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just wasn't really listening and, you know, it assumes, you know, assumptions of their mothers have all stuff up. So you get you get that sort of vibe after a time. And I assumed it was the other rock and I was wrong. And so I'm just sitting there waiting and my mate Pitch comes over to me and, and Pitch is like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, like. Thought it was this one. He's no idiot. It's the other one. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, of course. So we've already searched pretty much the whole top of the checkpoint, apart from a few little areas, and um, walking along, and pictures behind me, like 15, 20 meters behind me. I'm probably a little bit closer. It's more like 10 meters. Next minute, I'm looking up at the sky, and it's like rocks and debris and dirt, and it's dark and it's real dusty, and it's really quiet. I'm like, what the hell has just happened? So you're moving from the wrong boulder to the correct boulder. 
Yeah, over an area where I had already searched. So the going from one mole to the other, it was all searched. And specifically the 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 path on which I was walking on was the one that I searched on along. And we probably walked past this area maybe a hundred times. So not me specifically, but all over, you know, all the group. A hundred times someone's walked past or walked through that area. So there's footprints everywhere, markers on the ground to say, don't go past this. And it's all within this boundary and walk along. And yeah, next minute I'm like on the flat of my back looking up at the sky going, what the hell has just happened? Like, what? Like this is this is strange. No pain at this stage. I sort of get out of my my days and I get up on my elbows and like the penny just drops. I, I knew what had happened. And I could see the blast crater next to me. I could see bits of my metal detector all over the place. I could see my rifle had been like snapped in half and blown out of my hand. It was off to the right-hand side. And and then I, I obviously saw my legs in that, in that same process. And um, I could see the blood was like coming out of me really hard. Was like trickling down the dirt and into the blast crater, and I just was like, and that's when the pain hit, and then I started screaming, and and um, the pain was so intense. It wasn't just my legs; it was like my arms, my ears, my back, my bum, my my leg. Everything about my body was under the same amount of intense pain. Like it, it was wasn't isolated. I didn't realize that I'd severely injured my left hand. I had like or heaps of broken bones from my fingers and my wrist burns and all that up my arms and, and across my top of my fingers obviously in a bit of strife and I, and I knew that obviously with my combat first aid training I could see that the blood was like coming out really fast you could see that your legs were gone yeah gone like completely gone they weren't like hanging off or, or broken they were they're gone I grabbed my right leg and realized there was a real large wound and on, on like and I was touching my femur when I grabbed it and, and the pain and then I realized that my left leg was spraying more blood so I grabbed that to stop it I sort of pulled off my tourniquet and tried to loop that over but every time I got off my elbows I kept falling backwards because I didn't have any um, weight to hold me down with my legs and so I couldn't put on my own tourniquet which I knew I needed really really urgently and um, I could hear Pitch screaming off to the side I sort of remember looking over towards him I could see he was still standing up and sort of spinning around and I yelled at him to get my tourniquets on and he came like sprinting into my side and um, applied the first tourniquet and then got the second one on. Unbeknown to me and, and probably him and everyone else, he had actually had two perforated eardrums and a really bad concussion. So he appeared uninjured, but was, I wouldn't say severely injured, but, but minor, had some minor injuries that given the situation, probably adrenaline was flowing and it wasn't wasn't a big thing at the moment for him. And then the rest of the patrol, the engineer patrol, plus a few security guys that were with us, infantry guys for the security, they came running up from the boulder, which I was supposed to be at. And they um, obviously came across the scene of, of me laying on the ground, bleeding out, and they sort of shock and awe and trauma and terror all in the same sort of look. And they sort of jumped to and started trying to put on more bandages and tourniquets and I could feel myself going into blood loss shock. It was like, uh, it's quite hard to explain, but the short, sharp breaths, hot. I was breathing like, you know, 100 breaths a minute. It was it was pretty pretty quick and cold, clammy hands, all that sort of thing. And um, I said, boys, you're going to have to get the IV fluid out. And I need an IV now. So I start busting that out. And then by the time they get all that ready, 
the, another combat first aider came over from the, the vehicle harbour. His name's Stephen Court, um, and he was a, a combat first aider from the infantry team that was with us. And he took over the IV process, thankfully, because the IV getting an IV into someone who's um, got blood loss shock is a uh, is pretty tricky because of the the lack of um, blood pressure, so which makes your veins the right size so getting that in would have been tricky um he he nailed that and, and the guys were like what next what next what do you want us to what, what do you want us to do and i was like oh some some morphine would be good eh so but sorry until that point until uh steven arrives to and again he can take over given that qualification you're directing everything you're conscious enough to be following your, your own medical training that to direct your own treatment it's just, it feels a bit surreal. But again, it's that thing of the training takes over and distracts you to a point of the reality of the situation and implications. That's right. Yeah. And the only thing I can put that down to is two things is uh, the training itself was obviously very, very good. And it allowed me to identify the issues and signs and symptoms of, of what I required. Obviously, my legs are gone. That's, that's a no brainer. But legs gone is actually not going to kill you. It's the blood loss that'll kill you. So identifying what that looks like what that feels like not feels like probably looks like on signs and symptoms when you get taught it was something that was coming through to me quite obvious it's funny when you when you get taught something you don't quite understand not understand it but you don't you can't identify it in a training simulation you can't really do that you have to like scenario base the training and then when it actually happens you're like oh this is this this is what this is and whether that's you know playing a sport or, or learning a new skill, like guitar or, or whatever, or whether it's first aid training, it, it all sort of falls into place, and you sort of know what the flow and effects are if you don't do this or provide any mitigating issue uh, factors. The other thing was adrenaline, as that's the other aspect of it. And I think the adrenaline would have been an overdrive. You probably would have been able to register it on my breath, but at the same time, it was something that was able to keep me firstly conscious and then secondly, like good cognitive function so I could you know, process what was happening and, and try and instruct. And it was something that I was dealing with because of the amount of adrenaline I had. And you then quite rightly asked for that morphine. Did that give you sufficient pain relief? A little bit. Like um, I remember feeling it kicking in. So you start to feel a little bit sort of, sort of comfort in it. The pain was still there, but it was not as intense. It was sort of dulled, but the, it was still there. And then, yeah, they, they give me a bit of that. And then they put me onto the stretcher, start bundling me up. They put, put on like five tourniquets, I think, all up. They um doing the bandages. So I was being a pain in the ass. I kept sitting up and, and they kept pushing me back down because I wanted to check if the bandages were on properly and all that sort of thing. So <laughs> it probably wasn't the best patient, but they were doing everything exactly right. And, you know, I, I put hands down, put it put up to their ability, their, their skills and what they were doing. That's the reason why I'm able to talk to you, but. They picked me up and they, they put me onto the stretcher so they can carry me to where the vehicle harbour is, where the helicopters are coming and, um, well, hopefully coming and carry me along. And we, I'm joking about losing brand new boots and stuff like that. And, you know, just having a bit of a laugh, how lucky I am to get out of here and get to go home so early and blah, blah, blah. And I could I could tell that the guys were, were you know, were hurting, you know, mentally. You know, having the trauma of this happen to me is obviously an effect that you can cause an effect. You can see it. For every injured person, severely injured person, there's got to be, you know, 15 to 20 people that are affected in some way to somewhat, you know, that's not normal. So, and it's, you know, not every day you, you witness something like this. So to have that happen, I could also see that they were, some of them were, were traumatized in their own, in their own way. I, you can't put a number on it, but like a degree of it, it's obviously all on a spectrum. So 
And there were some guys that were crying, carrying the stretcher and things like that, which is human response and, and, and very, very acceptable given what, is, what was going on because, you know, I thought I was going to die. Oh, oh, sorry, I, I didn't think I was going to die then, but they might have thought I might have going to die. And, and that's in 100% could happen you know you, you never know and so i was like oh guys guys like oh, i'll be fine or something like that i was was quite aware of, of what i was saying so oh, i'll be fine i'll be fine it'd be sweet I'll, I'll just go to the paralympics or something like that and oh that's got weird and i said oh it won't be in the, won't be in the green and gold it'll be in the, in the black and white being being a kiwi wanting to represent new zealand and they said oh i suppose you can walk to the chopper then so <laughs> in that moment you know that that sort of dark humor goes a little bit you know <laughs> A little bit darker, but I think it's a, a great, a great aspect of of people or group of people that are going through difficult times to to draw on on humour to to connect and and to try and to get through it. I think is is um, and I, I think I think it's a great thing. But I don't I don't think it's uniquely Anzac or Australia, New Zealand. I think it's anyone who's going through a tough time. You know, it's a, it's a great tool uh, that we can use. I think we Aussies and Kiwis are quite good at it. I wouldn't say it's unique to us, but yeah yeah the dark humor as a coping mechanism is very prevalent and it's obviously something you could use in that moment and setting them up to abandon you for the threat of representing new zealand at the paralympics and obviously we'll get to the paralympic side of things for you but it's also um i think a great testament to you as well that you weren't just trying to tell jokes to lift your own spirits but you're looking at the team and going i you can sense that this will stay with them and it's not just about you it's about everyone here and you're cracking jokes to lift the wider morale of the team because they're also not going to really have uh, much of a transition with this moment, I guess, because you're going to be shipped off, you're going to be treated, you're going to be evacuated when stable, all that stuff, and then sent into rehab. They're not going to see you for some time. And so you're leaving them with a great, funny, lasting impression before you go off to do what you need to do. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, to this point, you know, I think these choppers are on their way. They're, I'll be here any moment and they carry me along and, then the boys laid me down next to the vehicles and I, up until this point, I, I said before that I, I didn't think I was going to die at, at all. Like it was more, something was happening all the time. Something new in the first aid process was happening to to advance my my recovery in a way. And it wasn't until they laid me down, I was like, man, like we're finished here. Like there's nothing more that we could do. Nothing more. That's when I realized that I was like, oh man, like I'm I'm actually probably gonna die here. This is this is where it is. Like this is where I'm at. Like there's nothing more we can do. And I knew that the, the longer that helicopter would take, the closer I would come to death. And getting onto that chopper was was the next phase. And it was waiting. We had to wait for that phase to come. And so I pulled pitch in again. I said, mate, you're gonna have to go onto my laptop and print off some letters, letters to my my family, uh, death letters to say that I wasn't coming home and it was really, that was really hard to do. He was only 19 at this stage. And I think it, it, I was aware of the weight of that that burden on to him. And I don't know if he, he understood it as much as I did because I actually thought I was going to die. He was probably a little bit more optimistic than I was. And um, so that was something that I was, I was very, I would say affected by it. It was something that I was very much aware that you know, what I'd done or what I'd said was was probably going to stick with him forever. Um, and, you know, it still sticks with me and it probably still sticks with him. But thankfully, uh, the choppers rocked up some like three or four minutes after I, I finished what I said there. So as you said, you know, the, the boys picked me up, slid me into the chopper and it was, there was no goodbye. It was just get, get out of here type thing and, and off we go. And 
closed the door and then took off and, and it beelined back to Tarankout, which was like a 40-minute flight. So they have this thing called the golden hour, the golden hour to get a, a, a traumatically wounded person from their location of injury to a, a higher-level medical centre or hospital. Uh, within the, within one hour, uh, it significantly increases their survivability. So, and we were outside that um, just due to the the fly time and obviously the radio transmissions and all that sort of thing. So by time the radios got there and the choppers took off, it was it was going to be outside that golden hour by the time I got back, which was obviously another dangerous point about where where being where we were as well. And we knew that. So yeah, it was just pretty shit day at work, you could say. <laughs> Definitely the shittest of shit days at work. And I guess we talked before, Curtis, about how there was when in the moment it happened or the moments after it happened, you were focused on uh, the next identification of treatment, the next thing, the next thing, and recognizing signs of symptoms and just dealing with that the same way when you guys are looking for IEDs or is this a cache weapon or not, you're just identifying the symptoms or you might say or signs of cache weapons and, and your brain just going through the process, going through the process. And then you'll have a whirlwind of activity, of surgery, of transportation is there a moment that stands out in your memory overseas or back at home when it slows down and you can sit with you that okay my life is now going to be this instead of that because you're only 24 at this stage you're a young bloke and it is a dramatic life change and you've as we'll get to shortly you've transformed it into something truly remarkable but at that point you don't know that is there a moment that kind of hits you a little bit later on I go through town count, get treated, then bounce through and then into Germany. And then I come home from Germany to Brisbane and I'm in, in the Royal Brisbane Hospital uh, recovering after all my surgeries are pretty much done and my wounds are closed up. And all it is now to do is, is heal. And I, I spoke before about the injury to my wrist and it meant that I was sort of bed bound or I needed you know, um, nurses and, and carers to, to move me about and to push me around to, or move the bed. And to the x-ray, I couldn't jump into a wheelchair unless they helped me into it. And it was about three weeks after I got back, my wrist was still injured. It was in a splint, but it was healed enough to allow me to move from the bed onto the wheelchair on my own without any assistance. Moving myself was like obviously an independent step. A lot of people talk about when, when they get injured or, or something happens or they, they lose their car, they lose their independence. They don't have that independence to do things. And that's what we should try and do as fast as possible, get get the independence back. And you know, I was trying to do that, but then I had this realization when I put my bum in the chair, I was like, man, like I'm now a disabled person. I'm not who I was before. And that'll never change. Like it'll I'm now someone else. I'm now a part of this club, the disability club. And it sort of dawned on me that. I was never going to be the Curtis I was before. And, you know, you could say the same about every person and every second ticking by that we're no longer who we are before on the past, but now, but this specifically was like this overwhelming feeling of loss, this overwhelming feeling of identity gone. And it was really difficult for me, you know, being an active young 24 year old that was looking for the next adventure and doing some physical things and, and, yeah, all that sort of thing was was now gone. And it was really hard, like really difficult for me to to come to terms with. I was traumatized by that. And um, luckily, um, my girlfriend and now wife, um, Rachel, was there with me and, and she sort of got me through that right at that moment. She was there and she said, oh, I think 
we should go up to physio and, and do our best there and, and see what's going on and, and see how you can do how, how what you can do in order to sort of progress along. And I was like, oh, okay, off we go. Went off to physio, did probably 10 minutes, <laughs> or if that, probably not even actually. It was probably shorter, more like two or three minutes. And went back to my room and just felt like crap and was just sitting there wanting like feeling very sorry for myself. And and um and then Rachel said, all right, let's let's set a goal. Let's get something you can work towards. Let's get something that that pushes you each day that is not is not unachievable. Like you know, I think that's really important to remember that if you set a goal, it has to be reasonable, has to be achievable. Otherwise, you'll never never reach it, and, and there's no point in doing it in the first place. And how many times do people you know set goals that are unachievable and, and feel like they've wasted so much? And, and that was really important to remember. And I sort of sat there and thought about it. And I was like, oh, probably I might might be able to get better enough to get my prosthetic legs on for when the guys get home three months later. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try and set that one. That was like, well, how do I do that? And an important thing that I've just read recently, which is something that I've been living by, but I didn't really put it into words in this book called Atomic Habits. You might might have it or know of it by, I think it's James Clear. James Clear, yeah. And it highlights the importance of process for goals. Goals are important. That, that's what you achieve. But actually to get there, you need process. And the process is the most important part of a goal. And if you don't set that out and clearly identify your little benchmarks or your little milestones, that is the most important part of, of achieving the goal. Now it's been put into words for me. I can articulate it a bit better. So I set out, you know, what do I need to do? I need to get strong. I need to get more my balance right. I need to get my my wounds closed, all that sort of stuff. So I had to identify, I wrote it all down and made that process. And then I realized that, all right, that's what I'm going to do. So by the time I was at the end of hospital, I was doing like 10 hours of physio a day. There was nothing else for me to do. I was strong, I was fitter, I was put on more weight because I'd lost so much in, in my healing process and I was ready to get get on my legs and, and that's that's what happened. I, I got in probably like eight days before the guys got home. So it was a pretty quick turnaround, but at the same time, it, was, it really uh, cemented to me the importance of setting those goals and then obviously having those processes as well to get, get them done. Another veteran on this podcast, uh, Dr. Dan Pronk, has uh, used the um, analogy of had you eat an elephant and the answer is one bite at a time. And that's something that you've got that smaller goal to work towards is be ready for the guys and have that reunion. And I want to ask you about that. But then I guess you also, with Fantastic Rachel by your side, you then gradually escalate that to the Paralympics and paracanoeing. And it's something that back in 2006, you weren't tossing up, could join the army, could become an Olympic athlete. It's a out of this world kind of goal to represent your country on that scale. So how do you go from nailing that first goal of being ready to see the guys and how does that go? And then I guess, how do you take that to the super successful outdoor adventure, sporty career you've forged since then? So the reunion was was interesting. I had had a few issues with the legs, with nerve problems, because now I, I wear prosthetics on, on parts of my legs that you don't usually bear weight. And and having those nerve issues held me back a bit. So I had crutches and there was a wheelchair at the ready and I could only walk like three or 400 metres. And it was hard, but at the same time, it was, it was really rewarding to actually achieve what I'd set out and, and set to do. But also I could show that I was still Curtis. I was still me. I was still wearing the uniform or the same uniform as what, what they they were wearing when they got home. And that was awesome. That was an amazing feeling to, to have that happen. But it also identified to me because I, I got to march in the Welcome Home Parade a couple of days later. 
and it, it sort of was this sense of closure that that chapter of my life as a combat engineer was now done. My deployment had finished. I had achieved it. I'd went there. I'd done the role. Um, you know, I'd come home, obviously, a, a few limbs less, but I felt a sense that I was, I, I'd completed. I, I was I was satisfied with my contribution to that. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on with what happens in Afghanistan um, last year. But that the the sense of of that closure to me and that completion was definite. It was it was like full stop, move on. What's next? Like what is next? And you know, there was a period where I was like, man, what do I do? Like, how do I do this? Should I how how? Like how? I'd, I'd never been a professional athlete. I'd never been down that path. Yeah, I played a lot of sport, but not at the high high performance level. It was all, all foreign to me. And you know, obviously what I'd said on the stretcher had leaked out a little bit and people were talking about it and, and getting in touch and still very keen on representing Australia, uh, sorry, New Zealand. And as I sort of progressed down that path and doing some trials in New Zealand and, and displaying talent to them, what they were keen on, I then realised that the further I would move away from Australia, the harder that goal to become a Paralympian would be. And because the support networks here in Australia for, for wounded veterans from combat is, is very good, in my opinion, from my experience, and I'm not speaking on everyone's, specifically my experience, I was very well looked after. I had a, an amazing CO at the time who was very aware about what I wanted to do, but also would like ring up every two days and be like, hey, man, what's going on? Or what have you been up to? Like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, this is what's going on. But like every two days, like I'd get, I felt like I was still a part of the military, even while I was in hospital. He'd come and visit me whenever he could. And it just made me feel like I was connected to who I was. And sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, if, if you're disconnected from who you are, you then get more lost. And that's, that's really, really important to remember. Then I realized, as I said, I sort of, the penny drops that I might have to compete for Australia because the organization here in Australia, Paddle Australia now or Australian Canoeing at the time was a big organization. They had more resources, more coaches, more better training facilities, blah, blah, blah. And it was sort of a no-brainer looking back. But at the time it was like, oh man, like this is not what I said I was going to do. And I'm generally a person of principle and integrity. So I'll try and do what I say I'm going to do. Then I started to realize that you know it is it needs to be done. And um so I picked up the paddle in, in late 2013. Um, after getting involved with like veterans charities, mates and mates, we did a big kayak from Sydney to Brisbane, got involved and, and realised that, you know, paddling is, is what I want to do. And so I, I moved down to the Gold Coast just after Christmas or just after New Year's in 2014 and, and got stuck in and, you know, went around in circles, which is not a good thing for a sprint kayak who's meant to go on a straight line, um, couldn't steer the boat very well. Didn't understand, you know, um, the actual scientific nature of, of high-performance sport. You know, there's a lot of measuring. Um, there's lots of commitment, early mornings, hard work, you know, swinging it out. It was was rough. But at the same time, I was very committed. And my coach, Andrea Wood, um, she was very much like a sergeant. She's quite strict. She was very, like, you, if I'm here for you, you show up, like, type thing. It sort of reignited that military sort of discipline for routine and perf not perfection is probably not the right word but a high standard yeah professionalism yeah i think it's probably the best word for it because you know you, you rocked up with your stuff you rocked up you know she was on the water ready to go once the clock start struck six was watches go we're off and if you're not there <laughs> you get left behind so 
it's just what it is. And then that's the punishment of, of not being ready and not having your watch or your water bottle or go to the toilet before you get on all that sort of stuff. And it was just the same as the military. You know, you're meant to have everything. You're meant to be where you're meant to be, dressed in the right stuff with the right gear and with the idea that you're going to do a set, set task. So that was the same as, as, uh, as sport for me. So that was something that I sort of thrived in. I was very aware of, of what was required of me, but also my obligations and what I required from, from the coach. And Andrea was was really good at um, helping me get through or learn how to do something I'd never done, which is at the same time is really difficult to try and find the energy because learning something new is, is, is probably it's so hard in terms of, especially when it's physical, it's, it's pretty rough. But it was, like I said, I, I thrived and I quite enjoyed it. And when did you and Rachel marry? So that was in 2019, a few years after what I'm talking about now. But we were over in Canada after the Invictus Games in 2017, and that's when I proposed. So she'd been with me through thick and thin and you know, supported me and enabled me and, and helped me through the hard times and the, the good times as well. And I don't think there's any other reason not to not to marry someone, you know, someone who's going to stick with you. And I hope I've supported her just as much as she's done me. So, um, that, you know we make a good good team oh it certainly sounds like it mate and what you've done in the paralympic setting is sensational you in 2014 i read australian paracanoist of the year and we just see your star rise and rise through rio de janeiro and tokyo paralympic games you've mentioned invictus various uh, paracanoe world cups and world championships and that kind of thing you had to adjust as well the type of um, paddling that you were doing as well, face new challenges there, and you're still going with Paris Paralympic Games 2024 in your sights. You more than lived up to this very outlandish promise you made on a stretcher in Afghanistan. It's sensational. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Alex. It's, yeah, it's been, been a real trip. And you know, this year uh, in August, it was 10 years since since the day. And you know, to, to think back, it's, it feels like another life. You know, I'm I'm now Curtis McGrath, athlete, Paralympian and veteran, but I don't I don't feel like a soldier anymore. It's it's a weird sort of disconnect. And I, I spoke before about what happened in Afghanistan last year in 2021. And I got a lot of questions because it happened just before I went to the Paralympic Games and obviously media and there was a lot of access to me and got a lot of questions about you know what happened to the fall to the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And I had a lot of friends and, and I saw it on social media and a lot of sort of media outlets were, were saying how angry veterans are about you know the, the the disappointing nature of the fall of that. But for me, I was I said it before, it was just great. I was, I completed my mission. I was happy with my contribution. I'd done my job and I'd left that behind in probably 2013, right at the beginning. I just, you know, a couple of months after, after I got out of hospital and found myself leading down the sports path, I'd come to terms with it, moved on. And I think, um, you know, we, you can't, can't hold, hold everyone's hand forever. You got to let them go. And let them do it, figure it out themselves. And unfortunately, it's happened the way it has. Um, and hopefully they can find peace and prosperity in the future, regardless of who's in government there. But you know, in the sense of completing a mission and, and doing my part, uh, whatever that may be, is um, I was very content with, with, with my contribution, regardless of the outcome in the end. So, And I do thank you, Curtis, for speaking with us today, because as you say there, your life is very much in this sphere now and the military is is in your past, so to speak. And although it's interesting that I guess you look down at your legs, there's possibly that very visible reminder of Afghanistan and your time in the military just becomes as well, I can imagine, your 
new normal, your, you know, it's just part of your day-to-day existence now. And the military side of things is the inevitable backstory, um, the trigger for your current life. But do you feel like the veteran part of you that still is in your mind day-to-day or is it something you've moved on from or like you said, it's the next chapter, so to speak? Because this is a story you will have told a lot of times. I'm sure you're sick of telling it. Thank you again for coming on this show. But it's uh, it's this interesting thing where your head's you're not letting yourself be in the past. You're very future and present focused, but you're also anchored to your past in a way. Yeah, yeah. I think um, what you said is 100% right. It changed who I was and I've come to terms with that change. And I think you can't let the past define you in a way in which holds you back. Let it enhance you. Let it let you learn from whatever mistakes, triumph, tribulations, tragedies, all that sort of stuff. They all need to enhance who you can become and and open. One door closes, another door opens. And if you can see the way in which hopefully I I can portray is there's so many opportunities out there for the veteran community to to go on and be not a not a soldier, but to be someone who's who's using what they learned, what the experiences they gained from the military to, to become something great, something that's fulfilling, I probably should say. Not not great, maybe fulfilling, I think is the right word. Because if you have that meaningful engagement and, and opportunity to, to fulfill yourself in that way, whatever it is, a hobby, a, a, a sport, a job, um, a family, education, whatever it is, there's, there's so many ways in which you can become a better person of yourself. And I think if we continue to to grow and make the most of the opportunities in which are ahead of us is is the best way to look at it. But don't, you know, obviously forget about the past. I think that's really important. We always need to remember to learn and, and grow. And whether it be, you know, a horrible day in Afghanistan in August or be, you know, a time where there's a family loss or, or a, a family birth, you know, it's, it's there's so many things that create who we can become but at the same time we have to grow from somewhere and the seeds get planted in our past and we grow into who we can become well i think those are valuable insights and life lessons that we can all apply to our lives no matter what the detail is or the scenario is so it is always a pleasure to hear from someone who has gone through something so significant and just see how they've so wonderfully transform that around them so thank you for all you do curtis not just representing australia and i'm glad you're representing us and dot nz at that sporting level but just thank you as well for being so willing to put yourself and your story out there because it's a great example of show don't tell it's that the lessons are in there like you've spelled them out there beautifully at the end but it's all just there on the page for what you've gone on and done and that's just something many will find so aspirational so thank you for being so willing to share uh, thanks, Alex. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. That was my conversation with Curtis McGrath, and my thanks go to Curtis for his time and coming on the show. This was the final veteran conversation for 2022, but stay tuned for this year's final episode, Christmas on the Line, Volume 5. This season, we've passed the 250 podcast milestone, Curtis is veteran conversation number 136, but when you add all the multi-part conversations, the bonus episodes, the panel discussions, the other specials and mini-series, it adds up quickly. The team at Thistle Productions is proud and privileged, as always, to bring you these remarkable stories. 
Thank you all for continuing to listen. To know when we're back with Season 7, make sure you're following us online. We're at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, including our return in mid-2023. Life on the Line is brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, and Sharon Maskell-Dare of Thistle Productions. Artwork is by Mark Thacker of Big Cat Design. Our theme music is by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget. Thank you.